our word of prayer and we go. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have made. Help us to rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you for the many blessings we have, uh, not only material, but all of the spiritual blessings we have in the heavenly places with Christ. Help us, Lord, to uh, hear from your word today. Let your spirit uh, convict us concerning truth, uh, concerning maybe any sin that we need to deal with in our life. Help us to draw close to you and to obey your word and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Rachel, close All right, so chapter 9, we'll read that together first. Luke chapter 9. And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are going are to go to buy food unless we are to go and buy food for all the people. Uh, For there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell tell this to no one saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief, chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed, when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with them Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he was praying, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stu stood with them. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples came, disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand in the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right. So before I get into the, the questions, just to let you know, it's, uh, it's my fault, but I didn't quite get the questions done for next week in time, so I will get those to Pastor Frank's today, and they'll be on the website, I'm sure, by tomorrow with the latest, right? Yeah? All right. So, FYI. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, what does Jesus command the 12 to do at the beginning of chapter 9? Proclaim the kingdom of God. To go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay. Good. And to heal. Right. Uh, and what was Herod the Tetrarch perplexed about? They're following John. He yeah. commanded John. Yeah. I know I killed that guy. Can't be that guy. Can't be that guy. Um, after feeding 5,000, how many baskets of leftovers were there? At number 12 pops up so often. Uh, who does Peter say that Jesus is? Mm-hmm. We're probably usually more familiar with the, the Matthew passage for whatever reason. It's a little more extended discussion there. But uh, what must happen to the Son of Man? He must suffer many things, be rejected, killed, and raised. It's interesting how plainly Jesus speaks about this, and yet it always just confuses them. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what becomes of those who are ashamed of Jesus and his words? The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he returns. Okay. Who appears with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah and Moses. Good. Who is the greatest in the kingdom according to Jesus? He who is least among you all is the one who is Okay. And what do James and John want to do, to do because the village rejects Jesus? <laughs> Smoke them. That's right. Light them up. Um, it's actually funny. Uh, you'll notice elsewhere, James and John are called like called by Jesus sons of thunder. I think that's probably directly connected to this incident. I mean, I don't know for sure. I mean, he rebukes them for their like wrong attitude and heart about it, but I think he also gives them a hard time about it later, right? Like, Jesus is pretty funny, you know? I mean, hey, easy, sons of thunder, you know, let's not... I don't know. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on, but... Um, why do you think Jesus instructed his apostles not to take extra supplies with them? Is it sort of the letting go of the earthly things um, and sort of taking up the, the mission of God? Okay. Good. And also, um, I would Sorry. say it's a testament to God um, because uh, later on in that, uh, in what he's saying, he, he said, as if they uh, do not receive you, shake off your feet as a testament to the Lord. Okay. So it, it's. It's a testament that he has provided or will provide for them. Okay. 
Um, and for next question, what commonality, if any, is there between the sending of the twelve and the feeding of the five thousand? Hey. Yeah. Just uh, just trying this this ability to depend on the Lord for everything, right? To not worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, uh, as he. In his Sermon on the Mount, he tell them, right? And so, just as he tells his, uh, his disciples to go out, or his apostles to go out, and not take anything with them, because the Lord will provide for them, he gives them a very, very powerful picture of his ability to do that with the 5,000. Um, with Peter's confession in verse 20, and Jesus is charged to tell no one in verse 21, how does this continue a theme in Luke? What do you think? Mm. Well, it's all timing. God wants, or Christ wanted himself to be revealed at the appropriate time. Mm-hmm. And and we, we've seen that throughout, that he's continually telling people, don't, don't talk about me yet, just wait, don't okay. say anything. So I think there's a timing aspect, but there might be another side of this too. Anybody else have any other thoughts? Where does he want the revelation of who he is to come from? Huh? Holy Spirit. <laughs> I think you said voicemail. I'm like, sure, man. Yeah, no, yeah, the Holy Spirit We're from the Father, maybe, right? You know, but, but um, you know, we do have um, in the, the Matthew parallel passage, right? He actually says that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you, right? Um, and I think, so you're, you're seeing not only is Jesus kind of waiting for the right time for these truths to be fully revealed to people, but he's also dead set that he, he doesn't even want it to, he certainly doesn't want it to come from demons, we've seen that, right? He doesn't want the demons telling everybody who he is, okay? That's not the testimony he wants. Um, but even, even Peter and his closest apostles, right, he's saying, don't tell people, right? Because this is something that the Father needs to reveal. Um, which is why Jesus has all these these parables, and he says things like, "It's so that they can hear, but not under you know, not really hear. They can see, but not really see." Right? It's only to those whom the Father gives that they'll understand. Um, in verses 43 through 45, Jesus foretells his death a second time. Why do you think this confuses the disciples? Because they've just seen it before, many miracles, including raising people from the dead. So it seems odd that he's going to go die when he's in Okay. Do something different. Yeah. That's a good answer. Well, good it also said it says it was concealed from them. Okay. Or at least the translation. Yes, yeah, it was concealed from them, which would imply that 
they were prevented from seeing. Yeah, I mean, at this point, too, from their perspective, pretty much everyone loves him because he is performing all these great okay. things. So it would be pretty conceivable for him to be rejected. Right. Yeah, geez, you're super popular right now. The crowds would never let that happen. Right. They also expect him to come in power and take things over, and him being killed would completely derail all of that. Okay. He so they'd be king if he's dead. They still have a false conception going on, perhaps, right? Um, I think you're 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 finding pretty wide acceptance of the idea that Jesus is probably the Messiah, but their definition of Messiah is still skewed, right? So yeah, this is this is the guy, right? We've all been waiting. This is him. Him. He's gonna throw the Romans out. Yes. No. Right. That's not what he's up to. Uh, but so yeah, but I mean, so yeah, I think all the all these answers together, we have a pretty good answer going on here. I mean, we have Jesus has shown incredible ability to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, calm storms. Right? They're like, really, Lord, what could possibly harm you? Okay. Two, you have yeah, this kind of at the moment it seems like you know really strong popularity in the polls right now. You know, I mean he's got like ninety percent of the popular vote going on. It's just those Pharisees that are upset, and they're you know don't worry about them. Um, but then yeah, there's this, this misconception. I mean he's isn't, aren't you here to be an earthly king, and we're going to put you on David's throne, and we're going to roll, you know, throw these Romans out of here, and you know all that kind of stuff. So. Just lots of confusion going on, uh, and it is it's noteworthy that after his um, resurrection, there's there's several places in scripture, where, uh, like in the Gospels, where in even the first part of Acts, where they talk about how, and they remember what Jesus said, and like now it makes sense. Now it makes sense, right? Oh, we're so stupid. Okay, um, I'm pretty sure we'd all be just as confused. Let's be honest, though, right? It's always fun to sit here and judge, you know, the, the apostles, especially Peter, stupid Peter, you know. But I would be just like Peter. There's no doubt about it. Cut ears off, ask questions later. Alright. How should we understand Jesus saying, Jesus is saying, that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God? Okay. She looks back at her old life, her old sin. So it's similar to if you're looking back at, at all the things that you're supposed to leave behind and you're not quite ready to go forward. Okay. It's a good picture. So the idea that of a, a professing Christian versus true Christian, or a culture Christian versus true Christian, that they're sort of in name only, but. They still have one foot on the second kind of thing. I mean, echoing verses 23 through 27, um, where he was talking about how, uh, like the proper man being in the world, and so, you know, whoever's ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of him. It's someone who, yeah, the profession could follow him, but really, she's saying, it's you. Okay. Uh, 
the very um, Israel in the wilderness saying, you know, in Egypt, we had onions. You know? So I thought, as a kid, I was like, what are you about that for? Um, but yeah. Um, so what the imagery that he uses here, though, of the plow and looking back, like what is this, what is that picture supposed to, like why would that be a problem? Well, you make very crooked rows. Yeah. Because you usually when you plow and you're doing it by hand, you find a fixed point on the other side of the field, like a tree or something like that, and use that as a marker to keep your rows straight. And right. if you're looking over your shoulder, that ain't going to happen. Yeah. Could you imagine Jesus' illustrations now, if you ever did it now, with like GPS on your John Deere, you know? It's a whole different kind of thing. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's... Uh, to, to look back is to cause you to veer off, essentially, right? To, to get off track. Um, and so Jesus is not looking for people who are half-hearted. He's looking for single-minded devotion. Uh, this, is, this is, I'm all in. I will fix my gaze on what the Lord has called me to and not look back. Um, what is the significance of the transfiguration? Why are Moses and Elijah included in these, this experience? And how especially to a devout Jew would this situation be understood? Okay. Yeah, well you got all this perplexion going on, right? Well, I think he might be one of those guys back, you know? No. Okay, that's good. Good clarifier. What else? Well, according to my <laughs> my cheat Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Moses was the giver of the law, and Elijah represents the prophet, which would be significant to the Jews. Okay. And and to build on that, um, the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus, mm-hmm. and the, so then the voice of the Father says that this is my son. So in other words, what these two men represent, you know, pointing to the Christ, he is the one who has come. So it. God just sort of definitively says he's the Christ, the Son of God. Good. Uh, any other thoughts on this? One thing that's really interesting, you might notice this, that the Bible tends to put stories right next to each other for a reason. Right? Okay. So right before this, um, Jesus says in verse 27, But I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Um, and then transfiguration happens. So this, that, path, that, that, that verse has you know, been a point of contention amongst Christian interpreters. right? Well, what in the world does Jesus mean by that? Right? Because... Uh, is this is this why you know I mean Jesus said he was really coming back before the apostles were supposed to die and so that just debunked his whole statement he wasn't really he didn't tell the truth you know a lot of people say a lot of different things about this and yet it seems to me that the connection between verse 27 is directly connected to the transfiguration they are seeing Jesus in his glorified state they are seeing the kingdom of God right before them. And it's just some of them, right? It's just the three, right? That, so, so I actually think that this is, is making that connection between those two texts. Just, just something to think about. Um, 
I don't think Jesus falsely predicted his second coming. Right. Okay. Um, so anyway, all right. So yeah. So you have Moses and Elijah, which is, as Pastor Franks was saying, you know, this is kind of representative of the law and the prophets, right? These are the two biggest names of the Old Testament in a lot of sense, right? Uh, David maybe being a, a real close uh, one there too. But the cloud covers them, right? And the voice says, this is my son, listen to him. And the cloud goes away and it's just Jesus, right? Um, further, you have in the, the Pentateuch, you know, this promise that there would be another prophet like Moses to whom you shall listen, right? And that's almost the, the wording that the father uses, right? Listen to him. And so Moses is taken away, Elijah is taken out of the way, and you're left with Jesus. And it's just a very clear picture that he supersedes even Moses and Elijah, right? Which, you know, that's why Jesus can be so cheeky when he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the guy. Any other thoughts on this or anything in chapter 9? Any questions on chapter 9 before we move on to 10? Anything that you particularly stood out to you that you thought was interesting or hadn't seen before or you had a question about? Okay, then we will go on to 10. Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Wherever you enter a town and they receive you, Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for this that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in a judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted to he- will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. 
and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see. You did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers, who stripped, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. All right. So what does Jesus commission the 72 disciples to do? What's that? Okay. Good. Uh, Go ahead to the different towns, uh, prepare prepare them to receive the Lord coming. Uh, they're not to take anything with them like the twelve, right? What will be the case for those who reject the message of Jesus' disciples? Does Jesus reveal? I'm sorry, I skipped one tonight. Yep. Jesus tells his disciples not to rejoice about their power over evil spirits, 
but rather to rejoice in what? Her names are written in heaven. Good. And to whom does Jesus reveal the Father? Right? Good. Uh, why, according to the text, does the lawyer ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? What's his reasoning for asking that question? What are the two people uh, who walk past the man hurt on the road to Damascus? Okay. And which of the sisters does Jesus say has chosen the good portion? Mary. Okay, so what is similar, what is different about the sending of the 12 in chapter 9 and the sending of the 72 in chapter 9? Differences and similarities. Fair number of similarities as far as um, they get their food and everything from uh, just as they go along from the people they stay with. Okay. Um, they're going out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. Uh, there does seem to be more of a sense of proclaiming judgment to those okay. who reject. Okay. Anything else you see? Similarities, differences? The packing list was the same. <laughs> the, the packing list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The difference is he talks about sending them two by two, mm-hmm. which maybe he said the others two by two, but this one specifically says he sent them two by two. Okay. And Good. they also went ahead of him to places he was about to go. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's also uh, more of an emphasis on prayer. Okay. Good. Um, what specifically is it that will make it worse for Chorazin and Bethsaida than for, than for Tyre and Sidon in the Day of Judgment? And what general principle might you draw from that? They, uh, God had uh, revealed more to them. Uh, he done more mighty works among them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also had scriptures. Uh, right. Um, and yet they still rejected him. So as far as the general principle goes, they are they are they had more opportunities to repent. They had more blessings in a way, and yet they still were ungrateful to God ultimately and did not choose to worship. Um what what uh, second part of that question? Like, what general principle do you think we could draw from this story? Like, what, how might it apply in a larger scale? We have more than they do. Okay. More, we have the whole. That's definitely true. Of, of the revelation. Yeah. Right. We have the finished canon. And the more and revelation that we have, the higher standard will be held to. Okay. More will be expected. Right. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting. <coughs> you know, we always. I don't know, in evangelical Christianity, like we've gotten to this point where we like to say things like, all sins are equal in God's sight, you know? And I think, I'm not 100% sure about that, right? Uh, I mean, all sins are bad, 
even the smallest sin is enough to separate you from God. Like, I mean, so there's, I can see where people get there, you know. But here's Jesus saying, it'll be worse for you on the day of judgment. That's got to mean something, right? Um, and, and so it does seem to be directly correlated to, as you're saying, the amount of revelation they received, right? So it may not be that, well, I don't know. I don't not, I really know. But maybe, you know, it's not like Dante's Inferno where we can, like, specifically, like, link sin to certain punishments or something in hell. I'm not going to go there. But I'm just saying there does seem to be some distinction between the severity of judgment. Um, and so although Scripture is very clear to tell us that uh, no one is with it, without excuse, right? Romans 1 tells us that God has revealed himself and the things that he has made so that no one's with excuse. Um, so even the, the, you know, the classical example of the pygmies in Africa that have never heard the gospel, right? They're still accountable um, for their sin and will be judged for it. But it does seem to me that there is, from this passage, we can draw the principle that there will be those whose punishment is less severe in some sense because of the revelation they have or have not received. Um, and so those of us who have grown up in America and sat in churches all of our life and had Bibles on our shelves and, you know, many of us have eight Bibles in our house or something like that, you know, I mean, how more accountable are we to the Lord to know him and love him and follow his teachings, right? Um, and this is where we talk about sometimes, as we talk about being in covenant relationship with God, that there is blessing. Uh, our children grow up under this blessing that non-covenant families don't have, but also it's, it's a greater curse if they were to walk away from it, right? Um, because they have received so much uh, tasted the heavenly gift, right, as Hebrews kind of talks about. Okay, um, what is the significance of Jesus' statement that no one knows the Father except those whom the Son chooses to reveal him? There's one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Okay. Good. Any other thoughts there? It's also implying that we can't choose God without Him working in our hearts to cause us to. Good. Yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing specifically innate in us that allows us to to grab hold of this truth, right? It has to be something revealed to us. Again, this kind of fits into the theme that we've been seeing throughout Luke that. Uh, this is something that the Father, uh, through the Holy Spirit, has to reveal to people himself. Um, I had this conversation just the other day with a, a, a co-worker, good, good Christian guy, but not in the Reformed tradition, you know, and, and we're talking kind of about election and things like that, and, and you know, he said, wow, I just, you know, I just believe that, yeah, you've got to tell the message to everybody, and it's just, it's just up to them to respond, you know, and, and I said, well, I mean, I understood a certain way, I agree, you know. Uh, but I said, what do, what do you think about Okay, so you hear the gospel and you believe. And your neighbor Bill hears the gospel and he doesn't believe. Why is that? Are you smarter than Bill? Are you a better person than Bill? I mean, what is the reason that you're crediting your acceptance of the message to? 
And he's like, well, I don't, I don't think it's any of that. And so I, I agree it's none of that, but what is it, right? If, you, if your answer comes down to anything other than God gave me grace and faith, it's all him that allowed me to hear and believe that message, then you've, you've asserted some sort of work on your part, right? You've asserted some sort of moral status or some sort of special thing in you that allows you to receive that. And so ultimately your salvation is mostly up to Jesus, but also something good in me, right? Uh, and so it's really important that we get this, this conception that this is all in the Lord's hands. Um, so what theme does the story of the Good Samaritan continue in Luke's Gospel, and how so? Okay. Yeah. Lucy and the centurion and we see numerous instances of the Gentiles' faith. And then we see the priest and the Levite go around and the Samaritan. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so time and time again, Luke is constantly pointing out and reminding people that the kingdom of God is, is spilling up over the cup of Israel and into the nations, right? Like, it's, it is not, uh, this good news is not just for the Jews, but also for the Greeks, uh, for the Gentiles, right? Um, of course, the Samaritans are, are kind of that mid-range, that half-breeds, half you know. Um, but nonetheless, you know, this is the, the most, um, in a Jew's mind, one of the most unlikely people to be receiving of God's grace or of God to, to think well upon. And yet here Jesus does this audacious thing and makes the Samaritan the hero of the story over and against the priests and the Levites. Um, you can imagine that the, uh, the teacher of the law who asked this question had to kind of swallow hard before he answered that it was the, the Samaritan, right, who... Uh, was really the good neighbor in this case. Except he doesn't name Samaritan. Yeah. He says the one It's true. And that may be very intentional, right? Anyone to say it. Um, so what do, you, what do you take to be the principal teaching of the story of the Good Samaritan? What is the big takeaway that Jesus is giving to us? I think it's the basically answering his question, who is my neighbor? The, the primary point is to say that you can't limit your neighbor to just those immediately around you. That mm-hmm. all of humanity is your neighbor. So when you have the command love your neighbor, you can't exclude anybody and say, oh, well, I'm keeping God's law. Mm-hmm. You have to include everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, building on that point, what's interesting is that Jesus expects um, so he asks this question, like, who is my neighbor, right? And so he expects, you know, Jesus to maybe point out the range of that term, you know, like, is this, is this just my fellow Jews, or is this, you know, whoever. Um, but Jesus kind of inverts the entire question, and he basically answers, you're supposed to be the neighbor. You are supposed to be neighborly to other people, right? Uh, because the Good Samaritan, right, it's not just that this, this man laying dying on the road is his neighbor, but he is the one who is a good neighbor to him, right? Uh, and, and this is Jesus' point that if you're in proximity to a human being, 
your neighbors, right? <laughs> like, love your neighbor. Love them as you love yourself. Um, all right, so we consider Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. What can this story teach us? For what is Martha being rebuked and Mary praised? And what principles should we draw from this? How specifically might we apply said principles to our own lives? Never do menial work. Never do menial work. That's definitely what he is saying. Don't wash dishes. Sounds good to me. Yeah. It's similar to the plow thing, the single-minded focus of Mary versus the like distraction of Martha. Mm-hmm. Other thoughts? Yeah, I just put being wrapped up in earthly concerns versus heavenly ones. Well, we could be be so caught up in doing things for Jesus that we don't spend time with Jesus. Okay. And he's, he's saying it's better to abide in my presence than it is to do all of these other things, you know, related to me. Not, I mean, is anything that Martha's doing in and of itself a bad thing or wrong, right? Um, we ought to be concerned about being good hosts and hostesses and things like that. We ought to, um, yeah, I mean, she's doing the kind of work that I tend to shirk more often than not, to be perfectly honest, right? Like, she's, she's the good servant, like, and she's concerned about all these details that. I tend to let other people worry about if I'm not, you know, I actually maybe need to be a little bit more like her in some ways, personally, you know. Um, so what she's doing isn't, isn't wrong, but it's not the better in this, in this moment, right? Um, and I think you see in, in Jesus' teaching uh, kind of like what we see in Ecclesiastes sometimes where there's a, everything is a season. Like there's a moment for what you're doing. There's, there's times to be serving in this capacity, um, but right now, time to be here. It's just time to be present. Just a little lesson, right? And same, it's very similar to when the Pharisees chastised Jesus' disciples for not fasting. It's like, there's going to be time for that, right? There'll be a time where that's really appropriate, but right now, they're doing what's right. right? They're, they're celebrating as the bridegroom is still with them. Uh, Alright, so anything in chapter 10 that stood out to you, that you thought was particularly interesting, that you've never seen before, or you have a question about? Anything along those lines? Well, it seems like with the Martha and Mary, there's a sense, too, of Jesus rebuking Martha, not as much for her actions, but as for her attitude uh-huh. as well towards Mary. And I think that sometimes we can serve with different motives and different attitudes. Yeah. Well, yeah, her statement in verse 40... Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And he'd be like, I was like, after her all the time, do you know that she's not doing any work? Well, I was just like, like any sibling. <laughs> yeah, you think about, she's commanding Jesus to do something. Yeah. Lord, tell her to do this. No. Yeah, kind of audacious. Probably good-hearted, but wrong-headed. So. Um, Anything else in chapter 10 stood out to you? Questions? Everything? It's a great promise at the very end. Uh, Mary's chosen the good portion, which will not be taken. 
yeah. away from her. You know, as far as Israel is concerned, they, their portion was the land, and that had been taken away from them at one point. Okay. Um, but really, Jesus is a portion. He's never taken away from us. Good. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. Help us, Lord, have eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say. Through your spirit, Lord, we pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us in your Son and in your word. We thank you for the many blessings you give us. We pray that you'd be with Pastor Franks today as he brings the word to us, that you would speak mightily through him as he faithfully proclaims your scripture. Help us just see you as you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, um, I apologize for not having the questions for next ready today, but I will have them to Pastor Franks today, and they'll be up on the website by tomorrow. So.